morning service, um, we've been uh, uh, listening to uh, prayers, uh, to the Psalms, and what they speak to us of our prayer life. And this morning we were hearing of the great refrain that goes through the Old Testament, uh, picked up in Psalm 136, um, over and over again. His love endures forever. We've just been hearing, you're a good, good father, your love for me it's who I am. God's love endures forever. Uh, in, the, in the 10.30 service, we have a, a little refrain that we say to each other just to remind ourselves over and over again of that. We don't usually use it in the evening service. Perhaps you could give me a hand, though. So I say, God is good. And like Jeanette, you say, all the time. And then I say, all the time. And you say, so let's do that again. God is good. All the time. 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 Amen. And we see his goodness above all in his son. His goodness and his love brought together. The goodness, the holiness that cannot abide sin and dealt with sin on the cross. The love which drew that sin into the heart of God and dealt with it there in the person of Christ. God is good and God is love all the time. And now, in this moment, at Jesus' table, we celebrate his goodness and his love. There are some words going to go up on the screen behind me, I hope. Prayer H. Here we go. Is it there? Yeah. The Lord is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to praise you, Father, Lord of all creation. In your love you made us for yourself. When we turned away, you did not reject us, but came to meet us in your Son. You embraced us as your children and welcomed us to sit and eat with you. In Christ you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. He opened his arms of love upon the cross and made for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. On the night he was betrayed, at supper with his friends, he took bread. And he gave you thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His body is the bread of life. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His blood is shed for all. As we proclaim his death and celebrate his rising in glory, send your Holy Spirit that this bread and this wine may be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. As we eat and drink these holy gifts, make us one in Christ, our risen Lord. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you this sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the eternal song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. So we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. And so we break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, redeemer of the world, grant us peace. So we say together, we do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord, whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. So draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which he gave for you and his blood which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that he died for you. Feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen. I could invite you to come up the middle and then fold wrap back round into your seats that way. But before you do, if I could invite Adam to join me and Jeanette. Thank you. Father of all. Okay. I'm going to say a prayer of thanksgiving. Join me if it's in your mind, if it's in your memory. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope you have set before us, so we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Bible reading tonight is from Genesis chapter 50 verses 15 to 21 which you should find in your church Bibles at page 57 and hopefully they'll be behind me oh as if by magic it's headed up Joseph reassures his brothers When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. 
This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope you don't mind <laughs> talking earlier about some um, words or passages that came to me. I get a little daily Bible reading and um, the last few days it's just been just exactly what I needed. And then today um, what comes up is Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And what have we been saying all evening? The Lord is with you wherever you go. And I just, sorry, I had to share that with you because he's speaking to us so clearly tonight. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, my, my equipment. <laughs> Thank you. Try not to fall down the stairs. Adam, come and share word tonight. We're just going to pray for Adam. Just want to raise your hands, stretch him out towards... Yeah, you can stand. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for Adam, Lord. Thank you for his calling, Lord. And Lord, would you speak really boldly through him tonight, Lord. Lord, Holy Spirit, come now. Fill him, Lord. Anoint his lips to challenge us, Lord speak your word. Lord, I pray that he would not hold back. Pray for salvation tonight. Use him powerfully, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I won't hold back, but Mike at the back's already warned me twice not to go on for too long, so um, I, think, I think we should get a trapdoor and give Mike the button. If I do go on too long, you can just uh, press the button and I'll sink through the floor. Great. Well, let me tell you about a guy called Mr. Apology. He was an artist, but an artist with a difference. He stole his art supplies. And in 1980, he started to feel ashamed. And I quote from him. He said, shoplifting began to seem juvenile, almost scuzzy. I wanted a way to reconcile my darker side with my lighter half. So assuming there might be others like him in New York City, he decided to set up a telephone apology service where people could phone this uh, telephone service and leave an answer phone uh, apologising for things they've done to people uh, or circumstances that they'd found themselves in. It was a judgment-free hotline that they could phone up uh, and leave uh, a message. And it became so popular that it even started here in the UK. I did try and phone the telephone number to see if it was still working, but it wasn't. Um, but callers were met with uh, a message that said something like, leave your apology after the tone, beep, and then you could then say your apology. And hundreds of people use this. You can actually go on the internet, on YouTube, and you can find kind of reams and clips of uh, people's apologies that had been recorded. And one man said, and I quote, he said, I took somebody's £10 from the cash machine. The person wasn't there when I found it, but later on the person returned and said, I left my £10 in the machine, and I still didn't give back to him. I hate myself for it. A woman who had caused a car accident, killing five people, phoned up and said, I've just called to say, I'm sorry. I wish I could bring them back. 
Husbands apologise for adultery, kids for cheating at school. Others use the service to confess to all kinds of criminal activity from drugs, rape, murder. And people think, and they do successfully, run away from God. But they can't run away from a guilty conscience. In a book published by a chap called J.C. Winslow in 1960, titled Confessions and Absolutions, he quotes the head of one of the biggest psychiatric hospitals. And the chap said, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the professor, he said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. For some, guilt can lead to serious mental health problems. But for most, it doesn't. But guilt does remain behind. It lingers as a nagging presence. And at times, it can just be a distant voice, but at others, it can be a raging torment for people, reminding them, playing over on their mind. And we're going to be thinking tonight about a band of brothers who committed a heinous crime against their younger brother, the father's favourite, and the guilt that plagued their lives from that moment on. And secondly, we're going to think about uh, how this crime shaped the victim's life, Joseph, uh, as we conclude our sermon series on the Founding Fathers. So my first point, Mike touched on this last week, the brothers' spectacular sin. You might know the story. It was a gang attack, attempted murder, theft of a most treasured possession, stolen and then ruined, abuse, abandonment of a minor, ABH as he's chucked into a pit and then forced into a life of slavery, sold for merely a handful of sugar, weighing a little more than a, a block of butter. And this gang, they cover their tracks good and proper. They bore false testimony to their nearest and dearest about the facts of the incidents. So if you think your family situation's messed up, how bad's this, right? The apple hadn't fallen too far from the tree. And the family of the promise, the covenant people, that we've been thinking about a couple of weeks ago, uh, now the covenant people, they're starting to tear each other apart. And it continued. Remember uh, Adam's uh, boys, the first brothers, Cain and Abel. Uh, uh, um, Cain killed his brother Abel. We saw Esau and Jacob and their kind of feud that they had. Now we see the eldest of Jacob's ten boys, they commit this spectacular sin against Joseph and cause a huge family problem, a big hurt. But fast forward the story and very much detail later and we re-enter the story and there's a crisis situation. It's a worldwide famine, so severe that the known world looks to Egypt to find relief from the famine. Flick back with me a few pages to Genesis chapter 42. Because word gets out that there is food in Egypt. So Genesis 42 and verse 1 to 4. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So the brothers are sent out for food and quickly we begin to see God's handiwork. God is in complete control of the situation and every situation and nothing catches God by surprise. There's no plan B uh, with God. Joseph's suffering was not plan B, not even this famine was plan B. And it's important to be reminded of that tonight, that even this crime against Joseph is all part of God's plan. It's all God is at work. And through Joseph's suffering, God moulds Joseph into the man that God wants him to be. And through his suffering, life will be brought to many people. After 13 traumatic years as a slave and behind bars, God's man is in the place just where God wants him to be, where he becomes Egypt's prime minister. 
So God's man becomes Pharaoh's go-to guy. He's the number two in all of Egypt. What a turn of events. And every single member of Pharaoh's army is under Joseph's uh, orders and authority. He's known, he's admired, he's respected for his God-given wisdom. And his plan is simple. Earn money for the gaffer during the famine and keep the people alive. Simple. And the whole world is looking to God's man to get them through the crisis. Have a look at verse 6 in uh, uh, chapter 42. Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. He was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. Now he's 39 years old. And his brothers are bowing down to him as he predicted way back in Genesis chapter 37 as we looked at last week. And it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing to see that happen. And he recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him, so he decides to test them to see if his brothers had actually changed a bit, see if the 20-odd years they might have changed. So he has them banged up and thrown in prison. I think I'd probably want to do the same. So they're thrown in prison for a time. They're accused of a crime they didn't commit, just like he was. Uh, Joseph called them spies. And on their third day in prison, look down at verse 21 of chapter 42. It says, they said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give account for his blood. What do the boys do in their distress? Their guilty consciences run wild. The torment of their guilt intensifies and weighs heavy on their minds once again. Now, I just want to pause here for a minute and just wonder if you can identify with Joseph's brothers. I wonder if you ever feel a sense of guilt, of shame. Perhaps there's something in your past that haunts you, something that you think one day it's going to catch up with you. What's that one thing that your mind wanders to which causes your heart to be downcast where you hear accusation? Maybe there's someone here tonight who's plagued by a memory, an action that may have occurred a long time ago. God wants to release you from that burden. He doesn't want you to be holding that any longer. He wants you to leave this place changed. Maybe you committed that sin many years ago, but you just can't escape the guilt from it. Maybe for others here, there's no particular sin, but it's more a general sense of inadequacy. Maybe failure. You just find it hard to believe that God accepts you, that God welcomes you, that he loves you. Perhaps from the moment that you step, step out of bed, you're acutely aware of your shortcomings and your failures. If there is something weighing heavy on your mind, Jesus is able to take that burden from you. You don't have to carry it anymore. I've heard it said many times since I've been here, uh, this scripture seemed to have just came back and back the last eight weeks. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you what? I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. If you feel burdened or guilty, then turn, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is particularly for you. If you're that person, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul's been uh, thanking God for his grace to the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians. And he speaks of uh, how in Christ they lack no spiritual blessing. Have a look at verse 8 with me. Uh, you'll find that on page 1144. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1144. 
and verse 8. He, that's God, will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that's true? Verse 9. God, who's called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. God is faithful. God, he's faithful. And the great hope that we have in the Bible is that God will do what he's promised. God is faithful. and God is good. If that's you, take those verses, commit them to memory, write them out, stick them on your fridge, stick them somewhere where you'll see them every day, and remind yourself that God will keep you and you'll be guiltless on the last day because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, as we've been thinking about, as we've shared communion with each other, we've seen the greatest act of love, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that he laid down his life so that you and I uh, might not uh, face the punishment for our sin, so that we could be at peace with God, with one another, and especially we can be at peace with ourselves. Do take the opportunity to come speak to Mike or myself or uh, others afterwards tonight. We'd love to chat through that with you. But I've digressed a bit. Let's come back to our story. Um, We will flick on a little bit. We will get to our passage, I promise. Uh, Joseph um, does let his brothers go. They they go back home. They they go to their father. Uh, Quickly, they run out of food. They come back to Egypt a second time for more food. Flick with me to chapter 45. I'm going to read a few verses here. Uh, 45, uh, Genesis 45, page 50, starting from verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they'd done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. For the next five years... There will not be plowing or reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Isn't that amazing? This is all part of God's plan. It was God's plan uh, that Joseph was going to be treated so badly. Look down at verse 14. Then Joseph threw his arms around uh, his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Let's just zoom out a minute and consider the big picture again. So uh, God made these big covenant promises to Abraham. We saw that a few weeks ago. There's going to be people. There's going to be God's blessing and God's rule on his people. And there's going to be a land for his people. Flick on uh, one more page to... Um, uh, Genesis 46 and uh, let's just have a little look at verse 26 there so Genesis 46, 26 all those who went to Egypt with Jacob those who were his direct descendants uh, not counting his sons, wives and numbered 66 persons uh, with the two sons who had been born in Egypt the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all Is God keeping his promise that there's going to be a people? Yeah, there's now 70 people. That's great, isn't it? Is there going to be blessing? Well, the family's growing. They're surviving during this famine. It's amazing. God is blessing his people. They're experiencing God's blessing. They're enjoying now the fat of the land uh, that they can come into Egypt and enjoy uh, the wealth of Egypt. But... What about the land? God's people are not in God's place, are they? They're not in the land. 
So as we zoom back into Genesis chapter 50 with that in mind, let's have a think about what these brothers are up to now. So uh, page 57, Genesis chapter 50 uh, and verse 15. So what's, what's happened just before this is that the whole family's mourned the death of Jacob. He's now died. He got to the wrinkly old age of 147. I once had the privilege of treating a patient back on the Isle of Wight who was 108 years old, and I got to look at her feet. They were the most wrinkly feet I've ever seen. So there's an extra kind of almost 40 years on top here. Uh, so he um, got pretty old. It must have been a big funeral as well. The whole of uh, the Israelites went out to this funeral. And now, what's, it's really striking, isn't it? These brothers, they seem to be freaking out. Uh, and we see that in the question they pose in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Do they not remember the conversation that they had just back then? What if Joseph still hates us, they think to themselves. What if he hates us and now, now that dad's dead, he's going to seek his revenge. He's going to get us back. Perhaps the penny had dropped and they'd just started to realise how cruel they'd been to their brother and their father. Just think um, for a second, how did the boys treat their youngest brother? Well, like dung on the bottom of the shoe. They treated him horrendously. And now their brother, he's the prime minister. He is the number one uh, in, in the land under Pharaoh. Maybe the uh, WWJD wristbands were in fashion in Egypt. Uh, and kind of he, he was spotting these WWJD bands. Uh, what would Joseph do? Uh, and they start freaking out. And the fear smacks these blokes right in the face. And they're thinking to themselves, oh no, Joseph now, he's going to pulverise us. This is going to be horrible. So had they, had they really concluded that Joseph only showed kindness to them, purely motivated by wanting to please his dad, and not out of love for his family, for his brothers too. So the brothers, they decide to concoct this plan, and they pull out all the emotional stops to try and win uh, Joseph's mercy. Now, I could be wrong in how I'm translating these verses, uh, but I'll leave that to you to decide. Have a look at verses 16 and 17. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. How convenient, you might say. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they've committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servant of the God of your father. Well, was it a genuine message? Perhaps Jacob had said this, but I don't think so. It seems much more likely that these boys are up to their old tricks once again. And so the boys send word to Joseph. They don't do it themselves. They use a third party, an intermediary, saying, um, Dad's given us these instructions before he died. Um, but, but did he? Well, it's handy if that's what their father had said. It's possible he could have said it, but I don't think they did. And we can tell that by Joseph's reaction. He weeps, doesn't he? He breaks down. He cries. He cries, and I wonder why. Why do you think he, he weeps? Well, I think he weeps because his, his brothers thought that he wasn't genuine. He thought that after all they'd been through, actually his brother wanted to hurt them. That's why it would have been so painful for him to hear this. And it also suggests that that's probably what they would have done if they were in his shoes. Had these boys really learned so little about forgiveness and reconciliation, they'd entirely misjudged and misunderstood Joseph and his motives. Did they really think that Joseph could live with them for 17 years in Egypt as a double-minded hypocrite? I mean, how hurtful would that be? if that's what your family thought of you, that you were double-minded, that you really you were lying to them all the time? Did they really think that Joseph had been acting 
all this time, acting like you love them on the one hand, but secretly harboring resentment uh, on the other. Can you see how that could have caused him pain? How it could have caused him to weep? My brothers don't think I'm genuine. That would have really hurt. So I think it's way more likely uh, that Joseph would have forgiven his brothers a long time ago. Uh, And God, I think, was preparing him for the role that he was going to be in, uh, in in Egypt. He'd forgiven his brothers even before he'd come to the palace to work, probably behind bars. I think kind of God would have been softening his heart when he was in that prison cell, just transforming him, working on him in in that kind of solitary confinement. Um, in, in kind of chapter 45, verse 8, that kind of tone really, really came out. It wasn't you who sent me here, but God. He'd said that to his brothers all those years ago, 17 years ago. It was God's plan. And he embraced them and he kissed them, and yet they, they doubt him. But, you know, Joseph knew. He knew the sovereignty of God. And it's like the Romans 8, 28 principle, isn't it? All, in, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's what Joseph knew. That's what had transformed Joseph. He knew that God could work through any circumstance in any situation. But what does this show us about the brothers? Well, they didn't get it, did they? They didn't get the, this forgiveness and this grace. And so they come to Joseph, verse 18, uh, in chapter 50. And they throw themselves down before him and they say, we're your slaves. 17 years the boys had lived in fear whether or not they were really forgiven by their brother. It's tragic, isn't it? It's a tragic story for the brothers. But what's, what's also tragic is that Christians can live their life in fear that they're not really forgiven by God. He's a good father. He's a good father who forgives. God really loves and he really forgives and he's proved it by sending his son to lay down his life that we could be forgiven. What's the promise in 1 Corinthians? He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless, guiltless on the last day. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Well, the next big thing to see is that genuine faith shows genuine forgiveness. How had Joseph overcome their cruelty? How was it possible for Joseph to forgive? Well, how is it possible for us to forgive those who wrong us today? Answer, knowing God, relationship with God. Joseph knew God personally, and he demonstrated uh, that he knew God by being able to forgive. When the road ahead was painful and bitter and hard, Joseph trusted God. When the road was easy, Joseph trusted God. One theologian said that there's four uh, proofs in this passage to demonstrate that Joseph had a genuine attitude of forgiveness. I wonder if you spotted those as uh, the reading was read. First one seen in verse 19, uh, when Joseph says, do not fear So when you totally forgive someone, you don't want that person to be afraid of you. Uh, Do you kind of know that feeling that when you, you know, you just want someone to be that little bit afraid of you, you don't want to completely forgive them. You're just that little bit distant, refusing to be just as friendly as you normally would be. You give them that kind of slight cold shoulder treatment just the right amount of kind of silence that the other person is just not quite sure where they really stand with you. It's easy, isn't it, to try and manipulate, take control of a situation of a person to keep them slightly in fear of us. A word, a look, a feeling, a sly response in a text message, cryptic. Just the slightest thing to stick the knife in and just twist it to put people back in their place. Now, if you've totally forgiven someone, then you don't want them to be afraid of you. And if you're anything like me, uh, this is something that we need help with. Uh, I need help with this. Pray for me uh, in this. 
And if, if my brother Stuart is actually listening to this, um, then, then I'm sorry, Stu, uh, for doing that to you recently. Uh, I apologize. Second way in this passage it shows us uh, that we've really forgiven someone is that you refuse to take advantage of a superior position. Joseph says in verse 19, Am I in the place of God? No, Joseph's not. He leaves the writings of wrongs to be done by God. Uh, God's the judge. I'm not the judge. Now, Joseph could have used his superior position. He could have used that to make them afraid of him. He could have used it uh, to demand their respect. But rather, he wanted them to see their younger brother for who he was, their younger brother. He wanted them to respect their kid brother, not as their superior, but as on their level. Not taking high ground against them, but humbly reaching out to them uh, to offer them forgiveness. And look at the end of verse 21. He said, he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph didn't lord his position over his brothers or make it painful or hard uh, for them to get his forgiveness. And neither should we. Third way of seeing total forgiveness is that you bind up the wound so entirely yourself, so completely, that what really happened uh, was meant to be. What That situation that's caused you hurt and you forgive, it was meant to happen. Why? Well, Joseph knew, and we should know, that everything that happens to God's people works for their good. Joseph's brothers, after this encounter with their brother, would and should have known they were totally forgiven by what Joseph had said. Don't you think, by the end of this? He binds up the wound. Joseph does this. He's the one uh, who fixes the problem. And he shows them that this was meant to be. This was meant to happen. You intended to harm me, verse 20, but God intended it for good. It was meant to be. And when, when we really capture that thought, when we really grab that, that's going to give us real freedom. It's really going to give us freedom to live the Christian life. The final proof that you've really forgiven someone is that you keep on forgiving them. That's the model. You keep on forgiving. It's one thing to forgive someone once for doing something to you, but to repeatedly forgive and go on forgiving, to perpetually forgive like Joseph did, well, it shows real character, doesn't it? He showed that in verse 21. Don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and for your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Total forgiveness. A week later, you're still going to forgive that person, even if they do the same thing. A month six months, a year, ten years, you're still going to forgive. Now, if God can forgive our huge offence, surely we can forgive any, anything that anyone else can do to us. Now, there may be people here who've been through really painful situations in the past, and by no means do I want to minimise the hurt that you might have experienced at someone else's hands. You might have been the victim of a crime. You might have experienced something deeply scarring. But what we want to encourage you with is that we're a church family who are here to support you and to care for you and to love you. But as we get to know God better vertically, that's going to change our relationships horizontally, that we can forgive other people. It's the most natural thing in the world, isn't it, to seek revenge? But by the power that God gives us, we can forgive other people. When I, was, when I was 15 years old, I was at a bus stop uh, at the top of Sandown High Street, and um, a troubled guy came up to me, and um, I was with a friend, trying to act really cool, um, and he asked me for a smoke, and I said no. He asked me for some money, and I said no. And um, you know those big metal road signs that have got kind of a red triangular-shaped border, kind of workman sign? Um, the next thing I noticed was uh, he'd kind of walked off, and then I turned to look, and then I saw this big road sign come flying towards me. I put my hands up to shield my face, and this road sign hit me square in the head, sliced off the top of my ear, pretty much. Um, and it was, it was, it was awful. Uh, my, my friend kind of picked me up off the ground. I'd hit my head really hard. My ear was kind of hanging apart. There's blood coming down my shirt, and he helped me home. I got home and um, went, went, went to the front door, 
my brothers came to the door um, kind of really angry and kind of, uh, I, I, I kind of said what happened. I didn't say who the person was. And um, I was carted off uh, to the hospital to have my ear glued back together. And my brothers, before I'd even got in the car, had put their boots on and they were out, out, out seeking revenge, go and find this guy. I gave them kind of false information about who the guy was, so they were never going to find this guy anyway. Um, you see, our instinct straight away is for revenge, right? We want revenge. Um, I never told them. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a long time before I told them actually who it was uh, who'd done this uh, to me. But then, but then I did tell them. Um, and um, it's kind of one of these things that it's hard to forgive someone for doing something uh, against you. Um, but I didn't, want, I didn't want my brothers to get involved in that situation. Um, see, as forgiven people, what's to come most naturally to us? We're to forgive other people. It's not revenge. Uh, it's not to hold a grudge. It's to forgive. And it's difficult. It's hard. But the pain does fade. As, as, as you know, the pain does fade. So as we close, the Bible constantly reminds us that God is a God of justice. He is a good father, and he is a good judge. And one day, he's going to right every wrong, and we can leave that to God. That's his job. Flick forward to Romans chapter 12 with me. Romans chapter 12, uh, page 1139, and verse 19. It says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Arguably, the hardest kind of person to forgive is that person who never says sorry, who never apologizes, who, who, who never actually acknowledges uh, what they've done wrong. Now, for you and I to really forgive, it doesn't depend on whether or not that third party apologizes. In fact, it's a better test for your godliness if they don't apologize to you, in that you forgive them anyway. So this guy who threw the road sign at me, he never apologized to me, but I love him, and I pray for him. I remember him, and I'm praying that God uh, is going to do a great work in his life and bring him to glory. But what does really matter is that we recognize God's hand in everything. We recognize that God is at work, knowing that in all things, God works together for good. That God has your life in his hands, as we've been thinking about. That whatever affects you, affects him. And when we capture that, that's when we get real freedom, right? If we capture that, we'll get real freedom. Passage also reminds us that God is in complete control. Moses, telling this story, wants us to see God's hand not only in the palace, but the pit and the prison. And God had a wise and good reason for the suffering of his servant. Verse 20, back in Genesis 50. Because you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Our God is a God who can even use wickedness for good. It's amazing, isn't it? God can use wickedness for good. We see that through the suffering of righteous Joseph at the hands of his cruel brothers. Life was brought to the world. Uh, in Joseph, uh, all the families of the earth did find blessing. That's that promise to Abraham, Genesis 12. They found uh, blessing. And ultimately, Joseph's a picture of who? He's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, our big brother, the one whose people rejected him uh, and wanted him dead and saw it through. They killed him. The one who was stripped not just of his coat, but of everything. So that you and I might know that genuine, real, tangible forgiveness today. And ultimately, the one whose suffering brings us life. The one who brings us life. And he's the one at whose name one day Every knee will bow, 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's a great thing to be reminded of, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we pray that we wouldn't hold on to grudges and resentment. Please help us to be slow to speak, quick to forgive. Father, just pray if there's anyone here tonight uh, who really needs to uh, take on board this message that you've forgiven us so that we might be able to forgive other people. Please help them do so. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sharp and active. And Father, we pray for your continued help that we might live and you, and you might be glorified in how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.